Welcome to another episode of Casting Views, the general topic podcast that takes a topic each week and, as the name suggests, cast views. This week, I've got good friend of the show, but good friend, full stop, Antonio from the cult worthy. Hi, Antonio. How are you doing? Hi, Dan. It's good to be back. Yeah, looking forward to this one again. And again, I've got to say I'm grateful because this was another idea of yours for me. So keep them coming, I think. Well, I mean, it's kind of my idea. You you did send me a whole list of ideas that you were like playing with, and I just kind of responded with the ones that grabbed me and maybe added to them. But That's true. <laughs> yeah. this is a fun one. I, I love talking about the paranormal and the supernatural, ghosts and aliens and cryptids. And I feel like there's so many of those podcasts out there that I've never like you know, taken a, a step into those waters. But to be able to have an episode on your show dedicated to one of those subjects, I think is really exciting. So I can't wait to start this. This episode, I'm not sure if this might be my final episode of this current season uh, before I take a little break. But I'm looking next season to kind of expand on some subjects I've done previously. And and I have touched on, as you said, some of the paranormal episodes. I'm tempted to delve deeper into potentially cryptids or urban legends, but get maybe you and Justin on, who was on the original one, because I know we had a quite fun conversation in our like WhatsApp or Twitter chat afterwards about it. So I'm thinking a uh, three-way conversation on, on that topic might might be fun. I mean, if ever there was a three-way, that's the one I'd want. So. <laughs> yeah, I'll stop short of saying that, but yeah, why not? Why not? Before we kick in, how are things going? I know I always say every time I'm joking about you being the busiest person I know in podcasting, but I think today you've you've confirmed that's that's the case, right? Because you're saying <laughs> you're recording five today, is that? Yeah, I got five uh, episodes of various podcasts that I'm doing today. And it's not like I just threw them all together. They're scheduled. They've been scheduled for a while. So I may be busy, but I'm organized. So I'm not <laughs> overwhelmed at the moment. It's not like I accidentally scheduled five podcasts on the same day. And I'm running around crazy trying to figure out what to do. No, I'm cool. I got it. <laughs> See, I did four in a week and that was enough for me. And that was a week. <laughs> I'm five in a day. Yeah, but two of them aren't mine. Like I have a guest spot on your show. I have a guest spot on another show. So I don't have to worry about editing those or <laughs> posting and publishing or, you know, I will do a little bit of advertisement. Of course, I like to share the word, but yeah, I can just hop on and then hop right off. Excellent. And pods still keep going string string. I mean, Mill for me just keeps coming up. The, the subjects, the topics you're coming out with those are just fantastic each week. Well, thank you. Yeah, we got a couple of good ones today. I'm excited for you guys to hear them in a few weeks. Okay, well, tell you what, let's hear from some friends of mine and we'll come straight back into the topic. Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Nerd Nerdstalgic Podcast trailer. Now, if you listen to this, there's a high chance that you've never listened to me before. So allow me to introduce myself. I am Luke, your host, and join me on a trip of all things nerdy and nostalgic where I'll be diving deep into the movies, video games, TVs, books and comics and all the things that you love. Uh, if it's nerdy and there's some hint of nostalgia to it, no matter how small, uh, I will be there to talk about it. So join me as I take a trip down the Nerdstalgic Highway and I really hope that you enjoy the show and that you tune in every week. So without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? Right, so as the name of the pod suggests, and as you alluded to, Paranormal, which is quite funny because this comes following a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to J&K about um, reincarnation and past lives. So it's funny mm -hmm. that we're touching on another element of this. So we're going to talk about 
hauntings or famous hauntings. I think first question for you is generally, do you do you believe in ghosts or, you know, have you got a history or is there people around you that, that have said to you that they think they believe or have seen anything? Absolutely. I believe in ghosts. I have seen ghosts. I have spent time in a haunted house. My mom spent her entire childhood in a haunted house. So I got to hear stories from her. Wow. And I'll share a story at the end of the pod that I've actually shared in another podcast, uh, one of the first podcasts I ever connected with early on in my my career, which was the Definitely Haunted podcast. And they're making a comeback, which I'm really excited. It took about a year off. And uh, I, I just remembered, oh, yeah, I told this story on their show. So since we are talking about hauntings, I will tell a story on this show. But yeah, I definitely have an obsession with the paranormal because of what I've seen and what I've experienced and what my, my parents have experienced. And it's funny. It's like, it's interesting that right now in this world that we live in, aliens are now just being discussed every day on the news. The government is officially saying, Oh yeah, aliens exist. You know, we're still kind of hesitant to tell you how much we know, but they aren't being shy about letting the public know that there are otherworldly technologies that they have been in contact with. But 10 years ago, it was still like half the people believed in aliens, the other half didn't. But ghosts and the paranormal is a different thing, right? Like no one's coming out on a government yeah. level or in like a, yeah. a bureaucratic or, or institutional level saying that the paranormal and ghosts are a thing. But there are lots and lots and lots of people who, even if they don't believe in it, they are obsessed by the idea of it. You know, it's made its way into our pop culture and our movies and our music and our TV. I'd say almost more than aliens. And it's the one thing that, you know, I don't think we'll ever really have an answer to, right? And this is it. This is spot on is a similar conversation with J&K. You can't, or, or at the moment, we can't prove it one way or the other. So who am I to say whether it does or doesn't exist? Because there's no way, easy way of getting the evidence. So people who say, no, I, I don't believe that ghosts can't exist. Well, why? Because we can't prove that they you, well, you could prove that they don't exist in the sense of the, the absence of the potentially concrete evidence, but the essence of what we're talking about means that it's inherently going to be so difficult to prove that. Right. Um, and we are finding things out all the time as, you, as as we go along. As you say now, people, I think, are becoming more accepting of the fact of aliens, etc. So who's saying... 20 or 30 years, we won't be able to evolve this conversation. I mean, I ask you because I, I was seeing some stats and apparently 67% of Americans believe they've had at least one of 13 types of or, or paranormal experiences. 37% of Americans say they felt a presence or unknown energy. 33% uh, of Americans say they've heard unexplained sound or music from where they shouldn't be. And 29% say they've heard a voice of someone who wasn't there. So it's, you know, and, and when you think about how big America is, we're talking about a lot of people then in that instance. So I think it's fascinating that we are still hearing this because for me, especially over in this country, it felt like something much more from 20 or 30 years ago than, than it has been recently. So mm. that's why I think this subject still fascinates me. Well, here's a question for you, Dan. You know, it is kind of hard to talk about the paranormal. It is kind of hard to talk about ghosts without bringing up the concept of religion and their ideas of what the afterlife is, you know, and that's something that it's a really curious question for lots of people is, you know, there are people who are very non-religious. They are atheists. They are agnostics. Yet a lot of them still believe there is some kind of, 
I'm not going to say afterlife. Let's say after existence, if it's not a spiritual one, maybe a metaphysical one. And I got to tell you that over the years, as I've, you know, kind of dove deeper into the world of atheism and agnosticism, because I was not raised religious, I believe that it is really more of a metaphysical thing. Like when we are dealing with so-called spirits and ghosts and entities, I don't think we're dealing much with like the souls of people who have passed as much as we are the metaphysical energy of people that have passed. And to go even deeper, maybe like the multidimensional plane where what we see as entities or ghosts or spirits and activities are literally just people living their lives in an alternate dimension, whether it's past, present or future. And we are just seeing echoes of it or we are just seeing shadows of it as dimensional timelines cross. I, I always say, believe in what, what, whatever you want to believe in. Whatever makes you feel the most at ease is the right thing for you. It may not be the right thing for anybody. But the way that my logical brain works, that makes the most sense for me. Is like If I had to explain what I think the paranormal and ghosts are, I think that's what it is. I think that there are just an infinite amount of dimensional crossovers that when we see, experience paranormal activities or ghosts, so to speak, that that's what we are experiencing. That's my personal thought. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I kind of agree. So I grew up in an Italian household, so the concept of, of religion was there and heaven and hell. It wasn't overly religious. You, you know, we go to church on a Sunday and at religious times of the year. Yeah, as I've got older, I, I have thought kind of more along the lines of you. And, you know, when when we talk about the body and the brain waves are just synapses, electrical synapses, who's to say that there isn't, or there can't be a scientific thing of seeing like auras or, or things in people because we are just like I said these pulses these these um, chemical and uh, scientific processes going on in in the body. I yeah I I kind of like the idea and, and I think your idea about this different sort of parallel universe I think is a uh, sorry or dimension is is actually a really good one and one I've not thought about before. And just another quick. See, I won't go into it here because I did mention it on another one. I think it was the episode called All Things Spooky. So, so check that one out if you're listening and you haven't. But there was this idea of something called the, I think it was the stone tape theory, where especially over here, hauntings are always in castles and, mm. um, in you know, in these hillside retreats, etc. And, and it was like the, the people were saying like the iron or, or, or the metals in rocks acted like the old cassette tapes. So if something extremely traumatic happened there, it's almost like the, the rocks retained the image. I mean, whether you believe that or not, or the, or the sounds, but I just love kind of like these ideas, like your one and that one of trying to explain, potentially there could be something there. I absolutely believe that. Uh, and it kind of goes in play with like my whole dimensional uh, crossover theory, because there are, they, especially uh, granite, limestone, and quartz, are the most supposedly reactive elements to what they say paranormal activity is. And I think they are probably the most reactive elements into what could be considered a multi-dimensional window or vibration that will allow you to see what's going on. There's a very interesting theory that the Loch Ness monster is a ghost because Loch Ness is bed of the lake and the bed of the surrounding shorelines is mostly granite. And so people are thinking that you are actually seeing vibrational echoes of another time where 
a plesiosaur or whatever you know aquatic reptile the Loch Ness monster is, they're actually seeing a ghost, a shadow, an image, a reflection of a time past, and not an actual living creature. Now, to me, that makes a lot more sense if you believe in the paranormal than it does a sea creature surviving in an isolated lake for millions of years. And hiding when and they're, hiding they're when people are trying <laughs> to find it. Exactly. I do like I said, I do remember when I first heard about this stone tape theory. I, I just thought it was brilliant. I like the idea of trying to still find scientific reasonings to try to explain something that we can't easily prove. And one more thing for me, I think most people or 99% of people I'm sure have had a, a moment where they felt someone's there, you know, and you, it could be yeah. a window open and it could be something obvious, but I'm sure most people at some point have had that uncomfortable feeling that they've heard something, seen something in the corner of their eye or felt like there was somebody else in the room or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I, I'm excited to hear this. So I've bought just a couple of quick stories because I know I, I think you mentioned you were bringing a, uh, two or three stories so i was really looking forward to hearing what you've got to bring so hand over to you Let, let's kick this off well you know i am fascinated by old hollywood and i am a, a cinema podcaster guy but i am very fascinated by haunted hollywood you know there are so many locations in a town where so many terrible things have happened to people you know we love the movies we love uh, the stories that come out of hollywood but there are so many uh, episodes of darkness and depravity of the human spirit and human nature, especially when power and money become involved. You know, you're hearing a lot of people coming out and talking about how there are like these Hollywood satanic cults and Hollywood demon worshipers and stuff like that. I don't have any evidence of that. I don't say that like people are lying. I believe that any organization that has power and the desire to control other human beings it is not above them to take a, a step into a darker world to, you know, ask the ether and the powers that be in other dimensions and in other worlds, help them to gain success and control and power and money. I do not doubt that for a second. But, you know, there are so many stories of, of misery and death and suicide in Hollywood and, and in Los Angeles. It is one of the reasons why you know, even though it's called the city of angels, it's also, you know, called the city of demons and the city of danger, uh, devils, yeah. because there's so many things. So there's two stories that I brought to you today are actually stories of hotels in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, in those surrounding areas that have kind of a very dark and dangerous and depressing history. And the first one I'm bringing you today is the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Now, have you heard of this one? I'm going to say no. So it was originally opened in 1924 as like a budget hotel, as a hotel for tourists and guests before the area that it now occupies has been named Skid Row for like the last 50 years. It's where the homeless people are. It's where the drug deals are. It's essentially probably the most uh, destitute area of downtown Los Angeles. Yet this hotel has always been in operation, even during the most you know drastic and disturbing times of Los Angeles his history. And it was never known to be a glamorous hotel. Like I said, it was a hotel that people could just stop and stay over on their way to wherever. But it did kind of have like a little bit of a destination uh, 
uh, draw to it in the 1940s. You know, there people would go there and see musicians. People would go there and see uh, actors before they made their big breaks who were living there for like $10 a week and stuff. So it did have a little bit of a history. It really started gaining a lot of negative history in the 1960s. You would have people commit suicide regularly in this hotel because it was such a cheap place to say people eventually would end up there and live the rest of their life out in destitution. And so one of the most famous stories of this hotel is Richard Ramirez, AKA the night stalker, who was a very infamous serial killer of the 1970s and 1980s. He lived there for about two years and many residents of the area knew exactly who he was and knew exactly what he was doing. He would literally walk into the hotel, still covered in blood from murdering his victims, and people just let it go. But police all the time were called to that hotel an average of three times a week to investigate killings, murders, drug deals. And they decided that the hotel was so dangerous and so depraved that they just stopped answering 911 calls to it altogether, <laughs> just leading it to be even yeah. more of an insane uh, location. And if you're a fan of the uh, American Horror Story, okay, they yeah, actually yeah. did a whole season called American Horror Story Hotel right? Okay, based off of all the events that happened at the Cecil Hotel. Wow. So have you ever heard of any of these stories as I'm mentioning them? No, no. I, I mean, it's, um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's always been kind of like these stories about these hotels, but not this one specifically and not that there was somebody just basically allowed to do what he wanted to do. I mean, that, that's quite astonishing, really. So there were lots of paranormal investigations because, of course, as they tried to, let's say, gentrify this neighborhood in the 2000s, they gave the Cecil like a fresh coat of paint to try to make it into a glamorous hotel, try to make it into a real tourist destination. It was very popular on sites like Expedia and Priceline because they were offering you know cheaper rooms. And yeah. people from all over the world wanted to come and stay in the murder hotel, right? In this yeah, yeah, yeah. crazy hotel. Ghost Adventures did an episode there. Ghost Hunters did an episode there. So it was really attractive. But one thing happened in 2014 that kind of stopped all of that. And that was the mysterious disappearance and eventual death of a woman named Elisa Lamb. Now, have you heard about her? No, no, this is all new to me, this. So there was actually a Netflix documentary on her and the Cecil, which was fascinating. But this is one of the things that people in the paranormal community really got excited about, which is kind of like weird to say, get excited about someone's disappearance. But... Elisa Lamb was an uh, exchange student. You know, she came from Asia to spend time in Los Angeles, and she had a lot of social media followings. You know, she was taking selfies, putting on her Facebook, showing herself walking through Los Angeles, and she was staying at the Cecil Hotel. And she had even done like a series of like Facebook posts and Instagram posts earlier in the day before her disappearance. And then no one heard from her. For several days, they knocked on the door to her room. No one answered, opened it, went inside, and everything was arranged perfectly. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, nothing in disarray. She still had her computer there. All of her money was there. She literally just disappeared. 
So when they went back and looked at the security cameras of the different you know floors, it shows her running from an invisible force. She is running from absolutely nobody. No one's on camera chasing her, but she keeps looking behind her as if she's being chased by something. Yeah. And it sees her get into the elevator and hit the closed door button really, really quickly. And then like she just turns, puts her back to the elevator. The elevator's door is open. She gets out and runs away. And that's the last anyone ever saw her was in that last few moments of that security camera footage. Now, a few weeks later, People started complaining about the smell and coloration of the water running from their faucets and their showers. Now, this hotel had a water tank up on top of its roof instead of getting its water supply from, you know, the groundwater, from from municipal water. Yeah. So they went up there to see what was going on. And when they opened up the water tank, they found her body floating in there and had been in there for two weeks. And that is what was causing the water in the hotel to be the way it was. Yeah, yeah. And to this day, that has been an unsolved murder. It's been an unsolved incident. Nobody knows what happened to her. No one else was caught on camera. And they think that this is a case that will never be solved. That's quite disturbing that story actually isn't it and linking back to what we were saying this is the thing even if you you know you don't necessarily believe in the paranormal there are certain stories that you can't help but feel creeped out by and i think this is one because like i said it's in a hotel so there's cameras everywhere yeah so it would pick something up right and that's why up for a start yeah that's the thing and that's why they they say this is one of the weirdest cases because it does play with the paranormal nobody is chasing her but she is yeah. running as if someone is. And the hotel has a history of being haunted. The hotel has a history of being cursed from all the lost lives in it. So whatever she was running from and whatever led her to that water tower is unexplained and unknown to this day. Yeah, and getting into the water tower, the water tank would take some doing as well, right? Right. I mean, it, it was locked. Yeah. They keep it locked <laughs> so people don't crawl up in there and go in there. So. Yes, uh, one of the most, again, fascinating and disturbing stories of a Los Angeles hotel that has ever been told. Definitely a creepy start. And, and like you said, I think there is always, there is stories like this are in, intrinsically linked with Hollywood, isn't it? And the film industry, there's always been these dark elements, haven't there? Absolutely. So like I said, there is a documentary on Netflix about the hotel and that incident that's fascinating. So people should go watch it. There's a lot of great articles written about it. And like I said, there is a whole season of American Horror Story dedicated to the Cecil Hotel. So that is my first one, my friend. Okay. Well, I've got a really quick story for my first one. And when you explain it, or when I explain it, there'll be a reason as to the root cause of all this. But it was something when I was looking that I'd not heard of before in England. And I wanted to look at specifically... British ones, uh, because I thought you'd probably come with more Americans. So there is a story or ghost story or legend in England that was called The Hairy Hands, which... (laughs) So I want to ask you if you've heard of it. (laughs) Uh, No. 
I have not heard of that one. And if Justin Henson was on this episode, <laughs> obviously he'd be making some kind of joke about it, which I will well, not. <laughs> well, I was going to say this could feature in a number of episodes, right? But <laughs> no, it's so it's it surrounds an area of Dartmoor in England. So that's if if you're looking at the map, the bottom left pointy out bit. So there's a beautiful area of the country there called Devon, um, but there's it's also quite a rural area, and it saw an unusually high number of motor vehicle accidents during the early 20th century. So the legend goes that as drivers were driving along this stretch of road, a pair of disembodied hands would come out, grab the steering wheel and drive them off the road. The earliest story started around 1910, where drivers and cyclists reported suffering unusual accidents between uh, on this road between two towns. And in many cases, the victims were always reporting that their vehicle had jolted or swerved violently and steered off the side of the road as if something unseen had taken control of the wheel most instances the victims survived because they they ran off into a grass verge but it took it went from a local curiosity to a bit more of a, a story when in 1921 a medical officer for the local prison was killed when he lost control of his motorbike now this was one of the old-fashioned style motorbikes with the sidecar and he had two young children in there they survived but they again said that there was just something all of a sudden driving along the handlebars are wrenched out of the dad's hand and yeah, it crashed off the road. Now, several weeks after that, there was another incident in which a coach driver lost control, which injured several passengers. And a couple of months later, an army captain as well reported that a pair of invisible hands had taken hold of him and forced his motorbike after the road. And it was after this story that it was picked up by newspapers in London and the story started becoming more well known across the country. And there was a journalist who wrote a, a, an article on it and he claimed that while driving near the town on an unstated date, a pair of hands gripped the driving wheel and I had to fight for control. He avoided a crash and the hands disappeared as quickly and as inexplicably as they had appeared. He requested, oh sorry, this was a, an interview someone gave him, but this, this chap requested that the journalist didn't publish the story until after his death, fear of ridicule. Now it's not always been... In motor vehicles, so one woman in 1924 who was camping, she was with her husband. She reported seeing a hairy hand attempted to gain access to a caravan during the night, and she reported the hand retreated after she made the sign of the cross. And there are variations that the hairy hands do not specify the origins of the hands or attribute them to any specific purpose other than driving motorists off the road. Now, there was the, the urban legend was they were of a man who died in an accident on that road many years earlier. You know, to finish it off, there are a lot, of, as always, there's a lot of skeptics who believe the accidents are caused by people who are unfamiliar with that area driving too fast down a narrow country road. And it was eventually determined that the accidents were due to the camber of the road service, which had reached dangerous levels and were altered. When I read it, it is likely that it was due to the camber of the road. What I like about this is, though, is how a story can build up, even to the point where a woman who is camping on the side of the road who isn't in a vehicle says she also saw a pair of these hairy hands. And I think it's, like I said, it just sometimes just takes the seed of an idea to take root and then it becomes something bigger than what it initially was. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's the same could be said with, you know, regional hauntings or regional cryptids where one person says they saw it because they saw something they couldn't explain. And if you've already got it in your mind that it exists and then you experience some kind of explained phenomenon, 
your brain immediately goes to that thing that you've heard about that area or that uh, location or that uh, the history of wherever you're at. So that could be a thing too, but that is very fascinating. Yeah, if you've already got that in your mind that you're going to drive down this road and hairy hands might jump out. It makes me laugh saying that out loud, but yeah, hairy hands <laughs> are going to come out. I mean, a couple of things I would say on it. So I always try to look at it from both sides. I mean, I don't know in, in America, but here, country roads here, well, when we talk about country lanes, these are extremely small, extremely narrow, and they can be extremely rough terrain. So it's likely that that was the cause of it. But, you know, when you read it then, and the medical officer of the prison would have been local, you assume would have known the roads. And then you've got an, the army general who probably was from around the area would know it, it affected them as well. So it's the argument or the case for it being paranormal would be, well, you've got locals who know the area and it's happened to them. And like I said, uh, sort of a quick one, but yeah. So if you hear hairy hands, don't dismiss it straight away. <laughs> I mean, I guess in areas like that, do you think that the residents, do they really believe that that's what it is? Or is that just some kind of fun thing they like to tell uh, strangers to the community just to kind of get a rise or kind of get a chuckle out of, oh, these silly city folk that are driving through, I'm going to tell them a legend of the hairy hands and then see what happens. Yeah, there, there probably is an element of that, isn't there? I mean, this was sort of quite early on in the 1900s, but, you know, does it then become a tourist attraction? Does it draw people in? Is it used as a warning to young people when they're starting to drive to be careful down that road? You know, is it is it almost like the perfect like public service announcement to say that we've got a stretch of road there that's dangerous, so we're going to say that there's a ghost there that's ready at any point to take control of the car if you're not careful. Right, or it kind of reminds me of uh, an American werewolf in London where the pub keeper is like, stay off the moors to the guys <laughs> that come in there, and they think that they're just messing with them to like get them out because they're, I don't know, xenophobic, they don't like outsiders, but... <laughs> And and that is the other thing, you know, again, I'm sure there are places in America, but here there are extremely regional areas and rural areas, sorry, as well, I wanted to say that can also have that creepy feel, especially when you've got buildings dating back hundreds and hundreds of years, you've almost got that ghostly feel as well. So does that add into it if you're driving in, in the middle of nowhere in an area right. like that? Yeah, quite possibly. And sorry, I've just got now in my head, I just want to say, Justin, stop, stop giggling. So <laughs> at that point, yeah. Like he said hairy hands again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, over to you for your second. Okay, I got another hotel for you. Um, have you ever heard of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel? I'm going to say no on that one as well, no. Another famous hotel, very close in its uh, construction date to the Cecil, 1927 for this one. But this one was actually in Hollywood where the Cecil was downtown Los Angeles. And you for sure would have seen it in movies. It's got a very uh, famous white exterior that's been seen in a lot of movies. In fact, if you've ever played Grand Theft Auto V, there's a mission that takes place outside of a hotel that looks exactly like the Roosevelt. So I think that was their inspiration for it. But okay. it was kind of one of the hotels that as... The industry was building up. This is during the silent film industry. They were starting to create these uh, extravagant hotels, not as much for you know, your average guest or tourist. These were more of playgrounds for the elite, right? Uh, the Chateau Marmont is another one. 
the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel is another one where, yes, anyone can stay there, but they were really kind of playgrounds for Hollywood royalty. Yeah. So when it opened, it was uh, Red Ribbon Ceremony, Clara Bow was there, Gloria Swanson, Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, Will Rogers, like all the big names. And they stayed there. A lot of them had their own rooms that were just for them. 300 rooms, 63 suites, ballrooms, conference rooms. It was really a place where like business deals got done and Hollywood elite would go and play at. So if you kind of read a little bit into the history, uh, when Shirley Temple was breaking into Hollywood as a young girl, she took a lot of her acting lessons, dancing lessons, singing lessons in the boardrooms and business rooms of the hotel. Uh, Charlie Chaplin lived there for many a year, just, you know, during his little dalliances with Hollywood starlets, he was always there. Uh, one of the more popular people that stayed there, which is going to lead to one of the paranormal stories I'm going to tell was Marilyn Monroe. She lived there for almost two years as she was getting her start in Hollywood. And in fact, a lot of her famous early photos before she was Marilyn Monroe, when she was still Norma Jean, were taken at the pool there or in her suite there. So it is kind of iconic when it comes to Marilyn Monroe. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, they had a notorious affair and that's where they would, you know, meet in secret. And it was no secret, like maybe like the worst kept secret in Hollywood. But they now actually have the penthouse suite named after them, the Gable Lombard penthouse. It's 1,200 square feet of the hotel rooftop and people stay there all the time because it is now famous for them pretty much having their affair there. So let's get into the hauntings of it. So it did go into some disrepair in like the 1960s, 1970s. They were tearing parts of it down. They were trying to modernize it, but never really had a lot of money. You know, there was financial crisis in the seventies that didn't allow this. But then in the late eighties, early nineties, as there was an economic boom, they decided to renovate the entire hotel back to its original glory. So it was made very retro back to the way it used to be with marble columns, with a real art deco style to the back of it. And they've pretty much maintained that style ever since then. However, ever since that renovation, there have been two very spoken about hauntings that it feels like no one in the hotel or even anyone in Hollywood disputes. And those are the ghosts of Marilyn Monroe and Montgomery cliff. So okay. Marilyn Monroe, even after she became famous would always frequent there. She would escape, let's say her very popularized divorces, uh, her you know, connections with JFK. She was always in the tabloids. She was always being followed by paparazzi back then before paparazzi even had a name. And so she would hide out in different suites of the Roosevelt Hotel. So to most people that were workers of the hotel, they just said it was like her home away from home. Mm. She could walk around those hallways and not be bothered by guests and not be bothered by staff because she was such a recognizable face there that everyone's like, oh, it's just Marilyn, you know? And in the meantime, people would just keep all of the newspapers and press out of the hotel that they could because it was meant to be a sanctuary for these people. So after her, you know, famous death that's still mysterious this very day, 
after that renovation, they started seeing apparitions of Marilyn all around the hotel in her different gowns and her different dresses. And it was never particularly attached to any one suite. You know, she does have a suite dedicated to her, but people see her in the ballroom. People see her in the bar. People see her in the hallways and the elevators. There's been as many as 1,100 documented wow. sightings of Marilyn Monroe's spirit in the hotel. So whether it's just like a popular uh, uh, theme to jump on, like, oh, I saw Marilyn's ghost at the Roosevelt. Yeah, There are people yeah. who've worked there for like 50, 60 years that say like, yeah, I'll take it to my grave. I've seen Marilyn Monroe's ghost walking the halls of the Roosevelt Hotel. And it's it's cool. It kind of goes back to the idea where it's like, you know, maybe she is living her existence in a, another dimensional plane. Maybe it's just her own dimensional plane. And the place where she found the most comfort and happiness is the Roosevelt. And so that's where she chose to spend, you know, the rest of her afterlife existence. Now, another one is actor Montgomery Clift, another famous Hollywood actor and he was really on the up and up in his career until he had a terrible car accident in 1958 that put him in so much chronic pain that his career never recovered. They could not put him in action movies. They could not put him in Westerns because he couldn't ride the horse. He couldn't do anything. And it really just saw the downward spiral of his career. And he started turning to alcohol and drug abuse. And he stayed in room 928 for several years as his life went into decline. And then after he passed away, no one really thought of it until they started doing this renovation. And once they did, people started seeing his spirit roaming the ninth floor hallway and occupying room 928. Multitudes of maids and cleaning staff and repair people have said they have felt a cold presence brush by them. And when they turn around, they see a very tall, handsome man and then he's gone. And most of these people had no idea who Montgomery Clift was, but as more people started looking into it and realizing, oh, this was the room that he spent the darkest moments of his life because it was like his getaway, they're like, oh, that's Montgomery Clift. And so again, there have been hundreds of documented sightings of Montgomery Clift's spirit walking the halls. And they even brought a psychic named Peter James into room 928 to spend the night and he said that he had a full-on conversation with Cliff who sat in the corner of the room and they just spoke and they just talked and once the conversation was over he just disappeared so yes another interesting ghost of the Roosevelt now the last one is interesting because there is no documentation of who this person is but the workers of the hotel and the owners and the investors know of a famous ghost of the hotel named Caroline. And Caroline is a five-year-old girl in a pink jacket who pretty much has the run of the hotel. She is seen by the pool. She is seen in the lobby. She is seen dancing in the hallways. But she's also known to be crying for her mom in different bedrooms, in different hallways, in different corners of the hotel. So again, this is for the last... 50 years people have been seeing Caroline. So if Caroline is a spirit from an earlier time, it has to have been pre-1970 because she wasn't really seen until 1970. But she is still seen to this day. And people actually say that they can walk up and talk to her. She'll laugh and then run away. 
So of all the ghosts in the hotel, they say that Caroline is the most active and the most interactive of these spirits, which I think is really sad and tragic, but also kind of cute, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because when you hear, I mean, everything up till now has been like adults, etc. So when you hear it of, of a five-year-old, it kind of hits you right. The fact that, like you said, generally it's playful and interactive with people. It's interesting because before you kind of got to that story, I was thinking, yeah, they often say, people often say ghosts are, you know, people that don't want to move on or got something unresolved. And I was thinking with the first two, as you said in your, your recount of it, they spent a lot of their formative or possibly something important, whether that's positive or negative years there. So is it almost like that that's where you can imagine their spirit being bonded to because that right. is that was like a recluse or a home for them. It's fascinating. And as you say, you know, is it becoming a, are people seeing it because they're expecting to see it? But then when you've got the hotel workers who've, who've probably got nothing to gain by saying that they're seeing it, right? Because everyone else is. But if you've got hotel workers who's saying that, I'll, they'll take it to their grave. Do you give a bit more credence into, into those stories? Well, I also think it's interesting too when people hear about adult formed entities or spirits or ghosts that there is usually some kind of tragedy behind it or darkness where it is like you said a intentional refusal not to move on to whatever the next metaphysical part of their existence should be but i think it's different with children you don't really hear about malevolent child spirits because they don't have all the experience and and life knowledge that adults do to start being logical about what existence even is. They're still figuring out their life. So when you hear about child entities, they are curious, they are sad, or they are happy and playful because if a tragedy were to fall upon them, in most cases, and I know there's a lot of cases where children are ex exposed to very disturbing and, and dangerous experiences early on in their childhood, and that's absolutely terrible, but you would like to think that the majority of modern and civilized societies, most children don't have those kind of experiences in the younger parts of their lives. In fact, they probably are the most happy and curious and playful experiences, even if they were born and raised in destitution, because it's what they know, and they still have that childlike innocence and, and curiosity. And I think that's why child entities are known to be more playful and interactive with people, because they haven't learned the disparity of, of how sad an existence can be, right? Yeah, and that's exactly it. That's what was going through my head. Children are innocent, right? So people are around because they there's a right they want a wrong, whereas children, is it because they just don't realise that they have to let go or they have let go? It's, right. it's sad when you look at it. The other thing I was going to say, and because when you started saying, I did look up uh, the Roosevelt Hotel. So yeah it's, um, yeah, it's familiar now. Now I see it. The other thing I was going to say is, Hotels are inherently creepy as well, right? You go down, especially if you're walking down a corridor on their own, they're all repetitive, mm -hmm. door after door, the, the lights, and they can give that vibe. So, you know, maybe is that why so many stories are centered around hotel as well? Because they just inherently got that creep factor built into the way they look. I can't remember who said it. It was a famous uh, writer. Um, I think it might even be William S. Burroughs who said that uh, every hotel we stay in, we leave a little piece of ourselves in. Okay. So, you know, because we're sleeping there, we're living there, it's a temporary home. So we're leaving 
If we're evil, we're leaving pieces of evil. If we're good, we're leaving pieces of good. We, we leave a little piece of ourselves anywhere we bed for the night. And then when you think about the millions of people that yeah, yeah. stay in hotels or stay in inns or bed and breakfasts and, and cottages for rents, or I was even thinking about this the other day, Airbnbs, you know, yeah, yeah. now these properties that were meant for families, right? These are meant to be single family homes that have now been purchased to be short-term rentals. You know, you now are introducing a variety of different energies into these properties. So let's say someone sells an Airbnb to a, a family and it becomes their home. Well, what if all of these experiences and energies that all these people have left in these properties now become a home? Are we going to see a rise in hauntings in family houses like this? I think so. Yeah, and like I said, all the people there, but not only all, all the hundreds and thousands of people that have been in the place, but the reasons why they're in that place as well, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. uh, whether they're escaping something or whether they are planning something diabolical, you know, it's really a fascinating thing that, you know, humans are so inclined to stick into one space, a home, a dwelling, but there are humans out there that never feel comfortable in one space and they're always moving and they're always moving and they're taking their experiences and their energies with them and leaving little bits of them all over the world. Yeah. Kind of a fascinating idea. It is. Yeah. Well, I'm just looking at time. So I'm going to do my one next one quickly because I want to make sure you've got time for your personal story. This one is called, and if you, if you don't know it by name, and I've spoken about it briefly on another episode, but you'll know what it's inspired and the reason I bought it is because it has got linked to Hollywood in a way um, so this is called the Enfield Poltergeist I chose this one um, and the reason I spoke about it is because Enfield was the town where I was born Ooh, I didn't know that this was literally I looked it up actually so it was about a six minute drive from the house where I grew up in so I was, I was there till I was about seven and yeah I always remembered when I was younger hearing talk about the, the Enfield Poltergeist it started in uh, 1977 so the year I was born as well not saying anything there's no link there and it was around two girls there were these two sisters who were allegedly being haunted there was a, a girl called Janet 11 and one called Margaret who was 13 so in 1977 their mother Peggy called the Metropolitan Police to her home to say that she'd witnessed furniture moving being flung around and two of her children had heard knocking sounds on the walls the children uh, reported witnessing the chair wobble and slide across the room, but they could not say why it was doing that or what caused the movement. Later claims included disembodied voices, loud noises, thrown toys, overturned chairs, and children levitating. These stories carried on for over 18 months, and they had many paranormal investigators go in and report on this. Some were saying they believed it, some saw the furniture moving on its own accord, and some you know, just wouldn't believe it. Now, there's a number of famous things in here. There was an image of one of the sisters levitating, there's spoons breaking. But the one that always got me is, yeah, the girl speaking in a really deep voice, which was supposedly the poltergeist who was haunting them, and messages appearing in their arms in, in like mm -hmm. scratches. Now, the thing is about this, the sisters did admit to hoaxing some of it. The spoons, the, the levit... Well... They're saying the levitating picture could easily have been taken as a picture as she started jumping. And the these scratches in the arms, they say, if you scratch your arm, then quickly rub it, you can get the blood to the surface. So it's one that's always 
kind of been there where people either believe it or they don't and and because there's the element of some of the hoax it's that's what i think damaged the story for a lot of people but i think it's clear to say these are suggested so whilst the the, the, the sisters admitted some of it the others like the um the levitating picture and some of the other pranks like they say because the voice was focusing it spoke a lot about menstruation which is what i didn't know until i read this that uh, they're saying it's probably the girls fascinated by that because it's probably just started with maybe one of them or, mm. or, or the both of them. So a bloke wouldn't be fascinated in talking about that. So people are surmising that they are hoaxes. But yeah, it's one that's always stuck around. It's the reason I said the link to Hollywood because it was the basis for The Conjuring 2. Mm-hmm. There's been a couple of documentaries over here. And what I found out actually, it's going to be a West End show this year starring Catherine Tate. They're putting it into a into a play, um, so I'm gonna head down there. And like I said, because it was so close to me, it's always one that has has kind of creeped me out. Because it that there was a, a famous BBC mockumentary one Halloween as well, which used this as a basis of it. Now, when you see some of the pictures and hear some of the tapes, it is actually quite disturbing when you hear that the voice that's coming out of them. Yeah, but again, it's just. I think for me, the reason why, and especially when I was younger, is because it's, I say violent, but it's quite a violent one. You know, furniture being flung around, the girls being held up in midair. It's it's just, that's kind of what the the scary stories of childhood all seem to, to kind of, or what got you when you were younger as a kid. Now it can be more subtle. It can be more sort of the, the stories behind it and the, the sadness behind the stories rather than the physical acts themselves. But yeah, so were you aware of the the Enfield Poltergeist? Yeah, I was aware of that story way before The Conjuring 2. I was aware of uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren way before the first Conjuring movie because Elaine would show up in different uh, paranormal shows I used to watch. And you know they were also very popular for the Amityville Horror, which, funny enough, they haven't really made a film with those two as characters in it. You know, All the characters are, are based around other people that were involved in that, but... Yeah, you know, and in The Conjuring 2, they have them as being like a big part of the investigation. They were actually only there for like a day. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they kind of walked around and said, oh, this place is haunted and left. But uh, yeah, I- I'm fascinated by that one too. Anything to do with children, I think, is always going to be a little bit more disturbing and mm. more popularized in the media and in the paranormal circles because, you know, really people don't care about adults. They don't. You know, if, if an adult gets scared by a ghost Ooh, you saw a ghost but when children are involved and when children are uh physically injured and attacked by an entity that is what gets people's attention and again like you said yeah there are some things i'm sure they kind of embellished when they were telling their story well that's what children do that doesn't make it any less likely that something actually was going on in that house you know so yeah, well, they were they were getting journalists, paranormal investigators there. So did they, yeah. as you say, embellish it to keep that going? Possibly. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. And it, it that doesn't surprise me. And I honestly don't uh, hold any contempt to people that do that, especially when they're kids. You know. Uh, yes. Can it ruin the credibility of the story? Yeah, probably. But again, I I think that the basis of the story and the actual haunting itself is just too congruent with other child hauntings and poltergeist stories that we've heard yeah. that people in their position in life because they were kind of destitute and this was pre-internet 
Yes. Yeah. They would not have heard about stories like this from other parts of the world or from other parts of the country very easily. Like they would have really had to seek out stories like this to come up with how they were going to hoax the whole thing. And we only had three channels in those days. Right, right, right. So that's where I like, I give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to that story for sure. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And what I would say to finish it is if an 11 year old and 13 year old girl in 1977 were able to fool journalists and paranormal investigators for two years consistently like that, they're more full the journalists and and that's so right. so that's why I'm saying there must be something in there because I don't think two girls uh, two children should I say uh, could get away with it that consistently long uh, yeah a hundred percent right let's let's hear your final story yeah so this is a personal one like I said I told this before on the definitely haunted podcast uh, a couple years ago now it was one of the first crossovers that I ever did with another show and. Uh, I spent two years of my childhood in a haunted house. So to give a quick little background of that, my mom spent her entire childhood until she moved out at 18 in a haunted house. Like they would move several times during her time living with her parents. And each of these locations was haunted by the same entity. The way she described it, it was two entities. One was just a shadowy man with glowing red eyes. And then the other one, was a shadowy figure with the head of an owl is the best way she could describe it. She has two sisters. Both sisters experienced the exact same thing, saw the exact same thing, and it never did anything to them physically, but it would stand at the foot of their bed or at the end of the hallway, or they would hear it run down the hallway and scare the cat. Like the cat was always afraid of it. And my grandfather admitted to seeing it too. Not as often as they did, but he said that he several times saw this owl-shaped entity in the kitchen of their home, in several homes. Now, the home that I spent time in was the home of my grandmother, my mom's mom. And it was a bed and breakfast. You know, She bought this old home, converted it into a bed and breakfast, and we'd stay there during the summers. And then when we moved to the state of Utah, which I live in now, we spent the first two years at this house, living in this bed and breakfast. And I never saw the thing during my visits, but I always had a sense of dread. I didn't like going in the, in the upstairs. I didn't like going near the attic. She had one of those old-fashioned attics where you'd pull uh, the stairs down from the yeah, ceiling. Yeah. And she would always say, never go in the attic, never go in the attic. So there was this one day where I was in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was up there and there was a bunch of paraphernalia that I thought was really interesting and weird, but I didn't think anything of it. And as I was, I was heading back down to the stairs, a pair of icy cold hands touched my back and pushed me down the stairs. Wow. And so I tumbled down the stairs. I wasn't hurt or anything. It was more frightening. And when I looked up the stairs, I did see a shadowy figure with glowing red eyes. And then it just kind of, disappeared. I ran, I told my mom what I had seen. And this is the interesting part, Dan, is that my mom at this point, I think I was nine years old. She had never told me about her experiences growing up. Really? So I didn't have a frame of reference in my mind of any of the stories she said. Yeah. So I told her, mommy, mommy, a man pushed me from the stairs. She's like, show me, show me. I'm like, I can't, he disappeared. Well, what did he look like? And I said, he didn't look like anything. It was just a black figure with red eyes and her face went white Mm. because she knew exactly what I was talking about because it's what she grew up with. 
So I told her, well, look at this in the attic. We went into the attic, and up in the attic, my grandmother had a collection of crystal pyramids and crystal skulls and Ouija boards and all these different summoning tools that she had kept with her for years. And we moved out very soon after that. But as the sisters started collecting their stories together and talking to my grandfather, it was very apparent that for as long as my mom was alive and living in those houses, my grandmother was into summoning whatever was out there, whether it was something demonic or just trying to make a connection with another dimension or the other side or the afterlife, whatever you believe in. This is something that she had been doing her entire life, which is why they couldn't just move houses and start over. These things were either following her or every time they moved to a new location, she would just summon them again and then they would just stay. And uh, that is my experience with the supernatural growing up. No, thank you for sharing that. So you say you, you could vividly recall like those those cold hands on your back. Yeah, 100%. Never forget it. And I've had a few other experiences since I've, you know, had that one growing up or like I've felt uh, a heaviness in a room. I'm not saying that I'm uh, an empath or I have a, an antenna for the supernatural, but I think ever since those moments when I was a kid, I can definitely notice that energy doesn't feel right. Mm. You know, like a sense of dread. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not to say that's like, it's because it's haunted or there's an entity there, but I just find myself cautious in environments like that. So. And how old were you? Sorry. I was nine when that nine. Okay. incident happened. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. You said about the fact that your, your mother hadn't said anything about it because that would have been the first question anyone listening would have said is, you know, have you oh, got you just it? made it up based off of what your mom said? Yeah. Yeah, or did you fall and then you think about that? But but then yeah, you, you do that, tie that up with the the things you found in in the attic uh, mm-hmm. that you said your your, your grand was looking into to kind of the summoning. Yeah, and also the other thing about your story, which when you said it made me made me kind of shiver a bit, is when you said about the cat because we all know that animals can see sense things that aren't there, like earthquakes, etc., the bad weather. So. And especially cats seem to be more uh, sensitive to things, don't they? Yep. It's a really interesting uh, conversation to be had. Again, it's hard when you have people who you know are very religious and they really believe in a certain structure of afterlife that it all has to do with good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Or a few people that think that it's all energy-based and you know, if we're seeing manifestations, we're seeing manifestations of, of residual energy. Mm. Not particularly an intelligence, you know. Well, that's what I said right at the start. We're still learning things, you know, as advanced yeah. as we think we are as a race, you know, human race. We're still learning things and there's still things that we haven't yet discovered, right? Yeah. And what I was going to say too is, is I always find when, so I've had growing up again, family members talk about certain experiences and it's when, you know, you can hear a story, you can tell me about these hotel ones and I, I could potentially laugh them off. But it's when, when I hear a personal story from you or you hear a personal story from families that you then take those, you, you, naturally you take those more serious, don't you? And that's kind of what makes you start looking at the, well, do people see things, you know? it's Right. 
Well, thank you for, for sharing the story. Thank you for coming on. And something I wanted to say, I should have said it right at the start. And while you're on the show, I just want to say, so people, if you've seen that fantastic new logo, bright and cheery logo of mine on all the social medias, uh, Antonio did that for me. So Antonio, I just want to say thank you to you because it's such a great, um, such a great image. Thank you. It was fun. I had a lot of fun doing it. And anything I can do to help you, Dan. <laughs> Like I said, thank you for coming on. I, I really look forward to, to when you come on and I've got a couple of ideas for you for the future. Um, do you just want to shout, shout out your pods again before you go? Absolutely. So my main show is the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast, a podcast about movies made before uh, 1970, 80s, 90s, all the missing classics, all the hidden gems. And then I also have the Cult Worthy Classic, which deals with classic movies. And then, of course, the MILF and Me which is my podcast about dating and romance and sexuality for people who are a little bit older. And my co-host is Diana. She's the MILF. And really what we do is we talk about her dating experiences in a conservative state like Utah, being 40 plus and just dealing with all the nonsense that comes along with it. So check me out and you can find all the links to those shows on thecultworthy.com. All very different shows and all great shows. And as I said, Milf and Me is just is superb. You're, you're smashing out the park with the um, the topics you're coming up with. That so, um, yeah. Thank you for providing me with some listening during the week. If you want to get hold of me, you can get hold of me at Casting Views. Um, that's pretty much across all social uh, platforms now. I'm just going to say that because by the time this goes out, we might have another one that we're supposed to all jump onto. So I'll just say search for it at Casting Views. If you want to drop me an email, it's at castingviewspod at gmail.com. Always happy to have people on as guests. So if you like what you hear, yeah, drop me a note and get in touch. We'll see you next time. Bye. If I want your opinion, I will give it to you. Come on, chick, what we've got, cause you need it. Don't make us get a spork in